The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vani Quinn. This week... The median projection is 5.2% this year and falls to 2.6% next year and 2.2% in 2024. Fed Chair Jay Powell on inflation forecasts after the FOMC decided on the biggest interest rate increase, 75 basis points, in 27 years. John Alter is near Kesar and Jonathan Levin discuss. Later... One in five Americans suffer from some form of long COVID. Lisa Jarvis on persistent and widespread... COVID-19. Let's get straight to the Fed now with John Authors and Nir Kesar. So we had the Federal Reserve meeting, we had the decision, we had the news conference, we learned a lot, but also a lot of this was priced in. We effectively got this on Monday. Is that too harsh? No. I'm inclined to say that the Fed probably handled an impossible situation about as well as it could be handled in terms of having a blackout, but obviously needing to make some kind of a response to really seriously bad numbers that came out. And I think the way they did that, which Jay Powell didn't really deny, was by guiding the press through what was likely to happen. And the market, of course, priced it all in. Yes. Near, the Fed chair obviously said that the University of Michigan preliminary figures were a huge motivating factor here. He said he's not going to see this too often from now on. Is that fantasy? Will we see numbers like this? You know, I wish we knew because it would make his job a lot easier. But I think that, you know, as you say, as John had mentioned, the bigger news from all this is how much Powell was committed to fighting this. They added a statement in the release that says that they're strongly committed to returning inflation to their 2% target. And he reinforced that message in the presser. And all this is really important because he, of course, is trying to get the market to self-correct, as it were, which they had done some of the work for him before today. The question was, once these prints became really ugly, were they really going to act? And I think they did their best, both in deed and in word, to reassure the market that they're going to fight this all the way. I think that's right. It was as though Jay Powell had a binky of the word commitment. I think he came back to saying they were committed to fighting inflation. More or less every question he took in the press conference. There were some very unusual things about this particular press conference, though. For example, the idea that headline inflation is almost becoming more important at the moment than the PCE deflator. I mean, is there any usefulness to the PCE deflator these days? There's a lot of use if you're a central banker. A politician quite reasonably cares most about the headline because the headline is what actually 
hurts people. You're calling Jay Powell a politician. I, uh, th- th- there are lots of fascinating issues about exactly how politically independent a central bank needs to be. But he's obviously under pressure, as he should be, because we do want some degree of democratic accountability, even if we also want independence. He's obviously under a lot of pressure to deal with inflation at this point because it's so intense. Well, and his excuse near is, and I'm quoting, forces are different. Inflation is behaving differently. The pandemic is over, though, and the war in Ukraine is a long-term event. So figure that out. Well, I think this has gone on longer than anyone wants. And so obviously we can no longer call it transitory in any way. But I think there's another reason to worry about the headline inflation, which is that some of this is based on expectations. And the headline inflation is what people are really feeling And to the extent that people are really feeling the brunt of the headline inflation number, and that is affecting their behavior and their expectations, then that's a problem for the Fed. So I think they're in this moment where, in a theoretical sense, they'd like to focus on the PCE, but as a practical matter, they have no choice. That's a great way of putting it. If you look at the retail sales numbers for this month, basically at a certain point, headline inflation becomes deflationary in terms of economic growth. And it's an empirical matter exactly where that comes but it seems to have come. Last month, there were fewer retail sales than the month before, presumably because higher gas prices and so on were acting like a tax. Mm. So there is a point which has been reached where the dual mandate goes by the board. You just have to get inflation down for the sake of both parts of the mandate, inflation and employment. Well, and I'm quoting again now, he actually said during the news conference, it would be hard to watch anything more closely than we're watching consumer spending. And it sounds like he's watching consumer spending, headline inflation, forces outside of his control. I mean, he's got a terribly difficult job and they're kind of hoping that unemployment goes up for good reasons and that that means that we avoid a recession. What are the odds now that we avoid at least a deep recession? I mean, they're looking slimmer and slimmer all the time. You know, I was just looking at the GDP now that the Atlanta Fed publishes. Their their most recent forecast is zero real growth for the current quarter. So it's looking like if we're not already in recession, we're on the precipice. Yeah. Yeah, that's a bit depressing. it's, It's not good. No. One of the things that forecasters have been saying is get out of risk assets. And we talked about this a little bit last week, Mm. John, about how companies are going to see default rates going up. It's going to be more difficult for them to roll over debt. At the same time, we've seen a massive sell-off. We're in a bear market for many of the indices. If we're already in a recession, how much worse can it get? Uh, Well, the key question is profits. We've seen a very big reduction in valuations in PEs, partly reversing a massive expansion in valuations in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic and the money to tide us through it. We haven't so far seen any real adjustment to what the E is likely to be, the E in PE. Mm. Estimates for this full year are still something like 3% higher than they were at the beginning of January, despite all that's happened since January. Exclude energy and it's still flat usually earnings expectations fall during a normal year. The fact that you haven't seen earnings expectations begin to decline in any meaningful way is the reason I would still be quite nervous about this market. It's all about expectations from the Fed to earnings near. Are you getting out of all risk assets? No, no, definitely not. In-out market timing is you're never going to be able to call the tops and the bottom. If you try it, you're going to lose. Having said that, I mean, I think it's useful to have some expectation about what's coming. I mean, I think the best thing we can say is expected returns for equities have to be higher today than they were before this whole mess started. You know, so far, this, to me, looks like a quite orderly repricing. Asset prices in the U.S. were too high. I think that was generally acknowledged. They needed to come down. You never know what the catalyst for that is going to be. 
Do they deserve to come down a bit further? I think probably, certainly they're well higher than the bottoms of previous sell-off. So Mm. there's a lot more room to go if the market wants to go there. Esther George, who had been a hawk, dissented in favor of 50 basis points. What was that about? I saw one interpretation that it was about communication credibility to the extent that we saw the Fed perhaps leaking the 75 basis point move. From what I know, obviously I haven't spoken to Esther George. No. Um, My best guess, because it is surprising she's been one of the more hawkish members, is exactly that. Having said that 75 isn't on the table, we really can't do 75. We have to do... 50 and be really mega hawkish about the future Mm. um i'm guessing would have been a line that would make some fair degree of sense and would be consistent with what she said in the past but um, it is strange well you know one of the things that i look at is again going to the atlanta fed they have a fed funds tracker based on the futures markets and right now a year from now that's sitting at 340 basis points and as we're sitting now after this rate hike today we're sitting at the range of 150 to 175 so they have a lot of room to move before they get to expectations. And of course, if inflation keeps running hot, I mean, if these efforts are not having a meaningful impact on getting some sort of disinflation, then those expectations are probably likely to go higher. Yeah. Um, and so at, at this point, the Fed is in a position where it's chasing what the market expects, which is both good and bad. It's good in the sense that it gives them a lot of room to move without shocking the market. On the other hand, it's bad because their credibility is constantly being questioned, right? I mean, they have to get up to the marker. Otherwise, they're going to be seen as not being serious about this. Right. And Powell, um, to me, looked like a guy who understood that very well today. Well, and in fact, hmm. he came straight out and said, and I'm quoting again, by this point, we thought we'd be seeing signs of inflation flattening and ideally declining. I mean, they must be completely shocked. There were only two Fed governors. I have the December dots plot in front of me. There were only two Fed governors who thought that Fed funds rate would get as high as 1% by the end of this year, as of December. Uh, Jonathan Levin wrote a great article And we're, this week. we're now well beyond that already. Exactly. Unan- unanimously bar one. His point was that Bullard needs an apology from somebody because he's been saying this and he was probably one of the only ones saying this earlier. Well, even, even he... Uh, because we don't know which dot he is, but even he has been surprised mm-hmm. in a hawkish direction by, by what's happened in the last six months. And he was the outlier. You brought up consumer spending earlier, Vani, in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the uncertainty that we're seeing within the Fed itself has to do with the way that economic data works, right? I mean, part of the problem for them is the economic data that means the most to them is lagging data. And so, you know, by the time that they have the data to make a decision, you know, a lot of people think that the Fed has already waited too long. Right. And to some extent, that's just the nature of the beast. Well, and but that's I probably think why they're they looking took... more and more to try to find leading indicators. And that's probably why they took the preliminary Michigan expectations so seriously. I mean, typically you'd wait for a final right. reading, right? Right. Mm. What's priced in now for Ju- what gets priced in I should say for July 27th now. At the moment it's a rate hike of 66 basis points I happened to check just before I came into the studio. So a 75 bips hike is seen as slightly more likely than a 50 and certainly Powell saying that it was going to be a choice between 50 and 75 at the next one and therefore implicitly taking 100 off the table and saying we shouldn't get used to rates hikes of this dimension was very important in the market liking what they heard as much as they did. He was saying he was committed, but he was also saying, don't worry, guys, there aren't going to be any 100, you know, medieval 100 basis points. And he did talk about front-loading. You know, I'm not sure the path matters so much as the destination. I think however they get there, my guess is what we're talking about now is roughly 350 basis points on Fed funds. 
give or take. And that's a number I keep my eye on because if that number starts to drift higher, then I think the probability of them having to be more aggressive on the path goes up also. I just wouldn't put a whole lot of faith in what the markets are telling us about the path. I would put more faith in what they're telling us about the destination as the data currently sits. Yeah, I agree with that. I personally am nervous. I can easily buy the notion that we need to go to four, even if the Fed doesn't essentially lose control. And obviously, if the Fed loses control, then the sky's the limit. Do but, we need but, to but worry? I do think three I and a half is a John, yeah. yeah, and do we need to worry about the curve being inverted at several points at the moment? Well, I mean, it's it's never healthy. It's never a great sign. At this point, the curve inverted and uninverted twice yeah. on Monday. I'm not that concerned about the curve as a whole because plainly it has been inverted or flat over a long enough period to signal very great concern about recession. And you know we can't really treat it as uh, much more of a concrete indicator than this. There are lots and lots of reasons for concern about the bond market in general, obviously. Yeah, including quantitative tightening. I, this is not the base case by any stretch of the imagination. But I think there is a higher probability than, than people are generally acknowledging that the Fed will have to go higher than anyone thinks right now in the Fed funds, and that the longer end of the curve doesn't follow higher, just for supply and demand reasons, because there is so much interest internationally in longer-term treasuries, because a lot of the pension funds in the U.S. have moved to hedge their liabilities against 30-year treasuries. Um, it seems to me that there's a lot of demand for U.S. treasuries on the longer end of the curve. If Fed funds goes higher than we think, you could have some serious inversion. I mean, you could have inversion that I think people are really not talking about whether it loses its signal at that point because of idiosyncratic supply and demand forces mm. in terms of telling us what that means for the economy, I'm not convinced that that's going to be the case necessarily. But keep your eye on that longer end of the curve. I'm not mm. sure it's going to follow the Fed funds this time. There was concern in the news conference about international economies, you know, and the stronger dollar. That's the question. That's the point I was about to make. The, the really big fault lines. The Fed matters a lot, but there are two other immense fault lines in the global economy, both of which are affected negatively by a strong dollar. One is the eurozone, where very unfortunately the ECB still hasn't managed to convince markets for much the same structural problems that you know, created the crisis of a decade ago, that it's going to be able to keep the eurozone together as it raises rates and more pressure on the euro makes that all the worse. And then in Japan, you've had the yen breaking through some very significant... 135 yes. or so now. Mm -hmm. And also 20 to the Chinese yuan, mm. which is only the second time it's got there. The first time was followed within days by the shocking Chinese yuan devaluation of 2015 that then caused a sort of mini global crisis for a few months. So there is, a, there is also a very important element of tension where the if the Japanese want to keep controlling the yield curve, that will mean the yen stays ever more artificially weak. And that is going to be a real problem for its neighbour, China. So that's the other fault line that it's very difficult to avoid. John Authors and Nir Kesar there. Some indicators of inflation expectations have risen uh, and projections of this year have moved up notably. So we thought that strong action was warranted at this meeting. And today we delivered that in the form of a 75 basis point rate hike. Fed Chair Jerome Powell. We're with Jonathan Levin covering the Fed and fixed income for Bloomberg Opinion.
Jonathan, what for you were the most salient features of this particular news conference? What really struck me was Jay Powell's meditation on what's going on with inflation expectations. And I really thought it underscored sort of the catch-22 that this Fed finds itself in. You know, the tricky part here is that, as Jay Powell himself put it, central bankers cannot control volatile food and energy products. However, those very same volatile food and energy products have a tremendous impact on the way that consumers think about inflation. So Jay Powell finds himself in an extraordinary pickle here right now. As we saw in the University of Michigan survey, those inflation expectations are drifting up. Central bankers believe that this is a huge problem. Clearly, this is happening in part because of what's going on at the pump. But the Fed's reaction mechanism, as Jay Powell himself seemed to acknowledge today is going to forever keep them behind the curve on managing those expectations. Yeah, exactly. And he even said, we're absolutely determined to keep inflation expectations at 2%. How much of a fantasy is that? I think it's going to be very tricky. I mean, it's not a fantasy because, of course, there is a possibility that some of these sources of inflation that consumers most experience could come in on their own, right? It would be great if some of these gas prices would moderate, if some of these food prices would moderate. But what we're seeing sort of unfortunately is Powell is tacitly admitting that so much of this is out of his hands. He's really kind of just, you know, putting his hands together and saying a little prayer that these inflation expectations could stay under control. Right, and there's absolutely nothing on the horizon to suggest that any of those things is changing anytime soon, right? I mean, we still have countries holding on to what food they can produce themselves and not letting it get exported. We're not seeing oil get any relief anytime soon. There's not much the Fed can do about those kinds of things, so it has to look for other avenues. Are there any? Yeah, I mean, you know, the main thing they can do, I think, is to just show that they are not asleep at the wheel. And, you know, 75 basis points, I think, is a step perhaps in the right direction. Perhaps that's why you saw such a rally in the market. I think markets are just pleased to see that this Fed is paying attention to what's going on. So, Jonathan, what's the Fed's terminal rate now? So, I think in the summary of economic projections, it has it it heading up towards the high end of the threes, almost getting to the fours. So, that is essentially consistent with what a simple Taylor-type rule would suggest after the CPI print that we just got. Yeah, I mean, does it look like a recession is more likely than it was a few hours ago? Well, you know, I was really struck by what the summary of economic projections said about the unemployment rate, right? So the SEP has the unemployment rate moving up, if I'm remembering correctly, about 40 basis points or 50 basis points. The SOM rule famously says if you move up 50 basis points on the unemployment rate, in a 12-month period, then you're already in a recession, right? Mm. So the SEP itself doesn't quite get us there because it has us getting to that higher unemployment rate in 2024. So it's outside of the 12-month time frame of the rule. But it really shows you how perilously close we're getting to that threshold. You know, the other thing that struck me, well, many things struck me. One line that I'm going to quote is, we are not trying to induce a recession. It was in response to a question about whether the Fed is trying to induce a recession. 
I mean, obviously, Fed Chair Jay Powell has to say that, but would a little recession help? Well, you know, look, the bottom line is that the Fed's tools, its only tools, is to control the demand side of the equation. They are actively trying to get people to spend less money at a very, very delicate time for the economy. So, you know, the risks here are extraordinary. I think for political reasons, uh, you know, and Jay Powell is ultimately a political figure, it would be crazy to go before the microphone and say, I want to take somebody's job away from them. Mm. They can't do that, right? But this is how it works. This is essentially how it works. I've written in the past that I think this idea that he can simply cool off the labor market by getting companies to take down listings, to take down openings without doing anything to the people who actually have jobs. I think the Fed has blunt instruments here and it's going to be extraordinarily difficult and would be virtually unprecedented in the history of this thing for them to to do a move of this magnitude, rein in the worst inflation in 40 years and not push up unemployment to a meaningful degree. Jonathan Levin. Don't forget to reach out with thoughts, suggestions, opinions. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at bloomberg.net. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vonnie Quinn. By the way, do get in touch. Comments and opinions always welcome. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at bloomberg.net. Now to COVID-19, that other persistent and widespread threat to US and global well-being, both human and economic. Happy to have Lisa Jarvis join. So, Lisa, first, a word about the nearly 1,010,000 people that are dead in the United States as a result of COVID. It almost seems unbelievable that that many people are dead in the last two years. But if COVID hadn't come along, very many of those would not be dead. Is that true? I think that's true to a certain extent. Very many people would have died no matter what. But we also didn't have good vaccine adherence once those were available. So, If people had gotten vaccinated when they were eligible, we probably would have seen several hundred thousand lives would have been saved. I would have to take a look at the estimates, but we know that many of the serious cases of COVID were preventable once the vaccines were available. What are we going to learn over the course of the next year to X years, maybe five years, maybe 10, maybe more, about COVID and various viruses like COVID from the amount of people that have died? Are there studies ongoing? I hope that what we're going to learn is actually from the people who have lived. And in that instance, what we want to know is long COVID. I think that's the biggest opportunity here to better understand viruses. One in five Americans suffer from some form of long COVID, which is a big umbrella term. It can mean a lot of different things. And that's part of the issue is that there's no good definition for it. But for a small percentage of that one in five people, that can mean that their symptoms transform into something that is potentially lifelong and looks a lot like chronic fatigue syndrome. We know that those people stop working. And so Justin Fox actually has a column out about that at the moment. It's actually showing up in the employment data. It is showing up in the employment data. And so, you know, we know that this is a huge issue now and it's going to be a huge issue going forward because even people who had mild COVID could end up with long COVID. And Omicron and its siblings are just sweeping the country. Many more people have been exposed, sometimes multiple times, to the virus. 
the NIH has been given $1.2 billion to run a long COVID study to really try to understand and get to the bottom of who's at risk, what are some of the possible treatments to better define it. Unfortunately, that study is moving very slowly. It makes me very worried about how quickly we're going to get to answers to help the people who currently have long COVID Mm. and those who will in the future. But we still have a lot of questions we need to answer. Also, how long does it last? Can it go away? I mean, just anecdotally, it seems that sometimes long COVID does go away. Other times it hasn't gone away yet. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Part of that is, again, you know, there's this big umbrella of symptoms that encompass long COVID. And one of the things that I think we need to do is get better at defining that. So you could think about it in two ways to start with. The people who had very serious COVID and have long COVID because they have organ damage from, you know, being in the hospital. And then there's the people who had mild COVID and went on to have this long tail of symptoms. Those are the ones that are the real mystery. And within that, there's other buckets, you know, people who have heart symptoms, and there are some treatments for that, and I think that's a message more cardiologists would like to get out there, that if you're experiencing heart palpitations or high heart rate after having COVID, there are treatments for you. There's people who have lung effects, and then there are these people who progress to these chronic fatigue-like symptoms. So, yeah, we'd like to understand what puts you at risk for that and how can we prevent it and how can we treat it. We're now at 85.7 million cases in the United States and another 100,000 per day. If one in five of those turns into long COVID, we have a very serious health issue on our hands over the coming decades. I mean, it's terrifying to really think about. And when you talk to people who are working on this, I think they really are calling it kind of a parallel pandemic that not enough people are talking about. I mean, there are going to be people, as you pointed out, whose symptoms do resolve. And it might be kind of like the same, you know, long viral effect when you have the flu. You might be tired or have a cough that persists for a few weeks. And some people are calling that long COVID. It may also be, you know, that some portion of those people go on to have longer term damage that's still hidden. We just don't know. We need to be putting more time and attention towards studying it. Lisa, how has the virus evolved from Delta through Omicron to the subvariants that we're seeing now? It seems like we're in, I don't know, the sixth, seventh wave of subvariant. <laughs> yeah, we keep seeing more. Part of that has to do with the lack of vaccinations around the world, giving the virus plenty of opportunity to spread. These variants form because the virus has lots of hosts. (laughs) Another way that the variants form is when they hit just the right host. So someone who's immunocompromised and the virus persists in their system for a really long time, that allows it time to evolve so that, you know, something fitter emerges. Right now, we've got three that are circulating. We've got BA. 2.121. We've got BA4 and BA5. I was looking at the recent data out of CDC, and I think BA4 and 5 are starting to really creep up in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Something like 21% of cases this week are those two variants, which I should note that if you're someone who had Omicron BA1, the original Omicron, in the winter, and even in the spring, if you had BA1 or BA2, you're susceptible to BA4 and 5. You might not get really sick, but chances are good that you'll get reinfected if you're not being careful. Um, And that brings up the question about those who qualify for a second booster. Is it of any use against the new subvariants? I think the second booster is always going to help protect you against serious infection. If you're someone that is at risk of serious infection, you should get that second booster. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so much virus circulating right now. Tony Fauci has COVID. You know, I think everyone at some point is being exposed to this virus. And so if you're someone that's high risk, 
we know that our the vaccine protection wanes over time. Yeah. Another thing that happened this week was that the U.S. started letting people in from other countries without a negative test. How does it impact the rest of the world and the United States domestically that people who have taken vaccines other than those that were available, say, in the U.S. and Europe, will start to mix with each other now that travel is becoming more prevalent? I'm not sure if the fact that they're vaccinated differently will matter. I mean, I honestly think that it made sense to lift that testing requirement in no small part because people were flying within the U.S. They're flying domestically without having to test. And we know that the opportunity for spread is great there. But I think one thing that has been a little confusing has been trying to parse data coming out of different countries that are better tracking infection where people have different kinds of immunity. So, for example, we look at data out of South Africa. A lot of people there have been infected over and over again with different variants but haven't been vaccinated. We look at, you know, Israel, where they've vaccinated with the same vaccines we use, but maybe in a little different schedule. That's offering us some good data. The picture is getting very complex as we try to understand, you know, our immunity, to be honest with you. Mm. Paxlovid, what do we know about it and whether we should take it if we get infected? Oh, goodness. So first of all, let me say, Paxlovid is a very good drug for the people that it works in. We only know right now that it works in people who are unvaccinated and are at high risk for getting COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we saw some new data from Pfizer yesterday that essentially said we're stopping our study looking at people who are vaccinated and have one risk factor because it's enrolling too slowly. And essentially, it didn't look like the drug was helping those people very much, if at all. And so we just were giving the drug out as part of this test to treat program, which the cornerstone of the Biden administration's current pandemic plan. And basically, if you get COVID, you can go get tested and immediately be given a prescription for Paxlovid if you qualify. However, you know, that really means that many, many people who may not benefit from the drug are taking it. A second issue is that we're seeing these rebounds with Paxlovid. So people are taking this five-day pill pack and at the end of it, they feel better and then their virus comes back. We don't know if that's because of Paxlovid or if that's something that naturally happens when you get (laughs) when you get COVID and those people, that same thing might have happened. But we really need to study it. So much to learn. Speaking of which, monkeypox, nearly 1900 (laughs) cases diagnosed now. Is it a real threat as we go about our everyday activities? I don't think it is. I mean, it's not that it's not serious and we shouldn't be paying attention to it. We should, you know, Um, but this is the kind of thing that transmits differently than COVID. You know, I think there was a little fear around some of the media attention to it being potentially airborne. I think most people think that's not a risk. It really is transmitted primarily recently through sexual contact. So it's important to get that message out in the communities where there are people who are vulnerable and may contract monkeypox. It's not a sexually transmitted disease. It's not an STI, but it is can be transmitted through that kind of activity. And so, you know, I think the focus has to be on contact tracing, making sure communities that are particularly at risk are aware. And then another approach I think that people are thinking about is ring vaccination. So if you've been exposed to monkeypox, you would vaccinate just the people who are close contacts to ensure that it doesn't spread. Well, and that's the other thing, Lisa, vaccination weariness. I mean, we're coming to the point where it's flu vaccination season again. Is vaccination weariness going to impact the number of flu vaccinations given out this year? Gosh, it's something I'm very worried about. So 
just to provide a little context, the first winter of our pandemic, we were locked down and, you know, pretty locked down and we had very little flu, almost none. It just never happens that way. And I think people in some of the high risk age groups, most prominently seniors, did a good job getting vaccinated. I think everyone was trying to get some sort of vaccine in the absence of a COVID vaccine. But last year, gosh, we had a little more flu. This season's been very wonky, but fewer people in those vulnerable groups got vaccinated. So we've seen vaccination rates drop over the last two years in both kids and pregnant women who are at risk for serious outcomes from the flu. So I worry, you know, I worry with general vaccine fatigue that people aren't going to go out and get their shots. Lisa Jarvis there. We're now choosing to end all conversations. Not with you, though. As always, we love to hear from you. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter. Or send your thoughts to vquinn at Bloomberg.net. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion.